0: Morning, everybody. Uh, I was instructed uh, this morning. I have my granddaughter's with me here, and uh, Bella told me we were talking in the car this morning that uh, you know about Christmas Eve. You have a Christmas Eve service? I said, no, we don't. She says, "Well, you're having a Christmas Eve Eve service, no. and that's what we're doing right now." Thank you, Bella. Good job. <laughs> All right. Uh, several years ago during the Christmas season, I was uh, experiencing some pretty significant back pain, pretty significant. My short-term solution was to break my ankle to distract me from (laughs) the back pain. But in time, my ankle healed, which was good. But it reminded me of the pain I was experiencing in my back, which was bad. Now, being a guy, I chose to ignore it and hope that it would improve with age. Uh, But finally, it was bothering me so badly I had to go to the doctor. And so I, I went there, and my hope was that he would say, "Here." Um, take these pills for a week, lie down on the couch and watch a whole bunch of football, and by Super Bowl time, you'll be fine. That was my hope. That's not, that's not what he said. Uh, what he said was, go to the hospital immediately and have an MRI, which sounded really bad. You might need surgery, which sounded even worse. Uh, that was not what I wanted, but it was what I needed to do. So I did. Uh, went to the hospital had the MRI anybody here been through that experience the, okay a lot of you okay this is about the worst thing I've been through they slip you into a tube that's slightly larger than a straw for a slurpee and then they close the door behind your head and you've got headphones on so they can talk to you from the outside how you doing mr. Kelly I'm doing great this is fun I don't want to tell the girl nurse out there that I hadn't been this freaked out since I got beat up by the nuns in Catholic school. But I survived that, survived the surgery, and lived to tell the tale. But remember, back in the beginning, what I, when I went to the doctor, what I wanted was that he would prescribe me pills and football watching. That's what I wanted. But he gave me what I needed, and here's the point. Here's the big point this morning. Often there is a huge difference between what we want and what we Need happens all the time. We all know this. You go to the mechanic to get your oil changed, find out you need a new transmission. Um, After dinner, you want dessert, but what you need to do is get the check and go. You wake up in the morning and you want to stay in bed, but you need to get up and meet with God. Maybe you're in a relationship and you want to get out, but you need to stay in, or you want to stay in and you need to get out, or something like that. But in all, you could go on and on and on in all areas of life. Often there is a huge difference between what we want and what we need. And if we're really, really honest with ourselves, we'd admit that some of our greatest regrets in life go back to a time where we opted for what we wanted rather than what we really needed to do. There may be people that say, I shipwrecked my marriage because I always opted for what I wanted rather than what I needed. Or I opted for a job way back, when rather than staying in school because the money looked good at the time and I wanted that. Some here may have gone to a counselor who told you what you needed to hear and you didn't like it so you went and found a counselor who told you what you wanted to hear. Lots of us can look back on a season or a chapter in life and identify a regret that was based somehow in I chose what I wanted rather than what I really needed. Now if you're a parent here this morning, Part of parenting is all about this, handling this dilemma with our kids because we say we can't give you everything you want. We have to give you what you need. Matter of fact, we would call a parent a bad parent if they only gave the kids what they wanted. Lots of times we know exactly what we need to do, but we don't have the discipline or the courage or the wisdom to carry it out. Uh, When I was in middle school, this is at least 10 years ago now, and I was in middle school, this was the first year that I was allowed to buy lunches at school rather than mom packing me a lunch that I took with me. So when I was buying, you know, it was time to buy lunch, I knew what I needed to get. I needed to get the official lunch of the day that came with salad and veggies. That's what I needed. Instead, for a whole year, I ate Krispy Kreme donuts for lunch. (laughs) I should have bought Krispy Kreme stock in 1975. But so often, we opt for what we want rather than what we need. Now, as I read the account of the Christmas story in preparation for this message, I realized something all over again. And it's the, really the first point, official point that comes up on the screen, which is really just gonna be a collection of thoughts to take with you today. But it's, it's this. The beauty of Christmas is that God did not give us what we wanted. He gave us what we needed. Because the people of that day were so, so convinced that they knew exactly what they needed. They needed relief from Roman oppression. It was so obvious. But the people's perspective was limited. And they really only knew what they wanted. If we were to survey the crowd in this room today, everybody here, and I ask the question, what is it you want from God? I think very, very few people would stare off into the distance and say, I have to get back with you on that. I have no idea. Now, most of us have a pretty good idea what we want from God. What do you want from God? I'll tell you what I want. And they pointed him or her or some solution to a job problem or financial problem, marriage situation, a health issue, prodigal children, whatever it may be. Let me tell you what the, the people in Jesus' day wanted. They were praying for, believing for, waiting for a Messiah. They really weren't all that different from us. What they wanted from God was a deliverer and deliverance. They wanted a Messiah, a warrior, a conquering king. They knew back in the glory days of King David, who was awesome for them. He conquered enemies, brought prosperity, brought prominence back to Israel. Surely the Messiah would be even better than that. He would lower taxes. He'd make sure they had food to eat, make life easier, make life better, make sure their kids weren't carried off to slavery. They had a list a mile long of the things that they knew that the Messiah ought to do. So if you ask them what they wanted from God, they would say, I'll tell you what we want. We want to deliver because life stinks right now. God hasn't answered our prayer in 400 years. And what's the deal with these Romans anyway? I thought we were your chosen people. We're not all that different today. We have our list of things that we want God to do and we think God ought to do for us. We want to be delivered from these circumstances. I'm going to change that. God, you need to change this health issue, this job issue, this parenting issue, this conflict issue. What we want is really not all that different than what they wanted. And we could take it a step even further, actually. Because later on in the Gospels, Jesus was having constant run-ins with these people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day who tend to be sort of the perennial bad guys in the gospel stories. The reason there was ongoing conflict is because Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they, they wanted. So they crucified him. Now, we don't do that. We don't crucify him. But when God doesn't do what we think he ought to do as God, Some of us get kind of upset. Matter of fact, you might be here today and you're a person that maybe walked away from Christianity, walked away from church a long time ago because you thought God ought to do this thing for you. You thought God ought to answer this prayer and he didn't, or at least he didn't do it in the way that you wanted him to. But listen, fortunately, friends, fortunately, our heavenly father doesn't give us what we want But he does give us and has given us in Jesus exactly what we need. So let's look at this uh, portion of the story from the beginning. We'll look at the beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Luke, the writer, in his account of this, he says that there's an angel that appears to Mary to tell her that she's going to be having a baby. And he doesn't, this angel doesn't, angel Gabriel doesn't seem to be fazed at all by the fact that Mary is still a virgin and it doesn't work that way. He has no problem with that at all. Now think about this. Gabriel hangs out with God, with God, all things are possible. This is extremely normal to him. Of course, that's easy for the angel to say. The angel doesn't have to have the baby, okay? It goes on. Verse 19, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. The, the customs back then are so very, very different than now, These were teenagers, two teenagers, and they'd been promised to each other in marriage uh, by their families. They were betrothed, uh, which is a form of being engaged that was as though legally they were kind of already married, which meant if either of them were unfaithful, it would be considered adultery, even though they weren't officially married. So when Joseph <coughs> finds out that Mary is pregnant... Legally, he has to divorce her in order to end the engagement, which would be a private embarrassment, if not a public humiliation. But Joseph wanted to honor her in some way and not to expose her to public disgrace. Says a lot about about Joseph. Here's what it says in verse number 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus means God is our Savior, or God has saved us. There's several different ways uh, to translate that. Verse 22. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Which means God is with us. So in essence, God is saying to Joseph, this is the long-awaited Messiah here. You're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be the Savior. And I can imagine Joseph saying, great, we've been looking for somebody to do that. We're sick of being a doormat. We're sick of the Romans. We've We've had it. We've had it with taxes. We've had it with being trampled over. We've had it with being mistreated. We've had it with being the, the strip of land through which all the other armies marched to attack each other. We're just, we're done with all this. We've had it. It's about time somebody came along to save us. And I can imagine God going, no, 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 Joseph, you're not understanding me. You're not hearing me. He will save his people, yes, not from their circumstances, not from Rome, not from taxes, not from difficult times. He will save his people from their sins. Oh, that's it? Yep. Okay, not exactly what we wanted. I know, Joseph. But trust me, it's exactly what you need. This is the thing that was so disappointing to people back then and not long after. This is what caused so many people later on to turn their backs on Jesus. They weren't convinced that the felt need of the day was to be saved from their sins. If you were to ask people in that day, what is your greatest felt need, none of them would have said, I need someone to come along and save me from my sin. That was not the felt need of that day. And let's face it, it's not the felt need of our day either. And back then, there was a whole lot of things, way higher on the list than someone to save me from my sins. In their day, they kind of felt like sin was under control. Sin didn't seem to be a big deal to them. There was a system to deal with sin. You would just go to the temple, get a couple of doves or a sheep and whack them and have the priest sprinkle blood all over everything, which is pretty gross. But then you'd go home and get cleaned up and sin was dealt with, at least for the time being. So they would say, we kind of got sin under control here. I don't need someone to come along and save me from my sin. I need you to deal with my in-laws. That's what I really need. Or, I need you to take care of my husband, my wife, my kids, my job, taxes, Romans, whatever. Sin's kind of under control. I don't need someone to come along and save me from my sin. That's what they'd say, probably. And we're not that much different now. We don't slaughter sheep anymore, thank goodness. But we kind of have a mental system in place, whether we admit it or not. And in our minds, there's certain things that we think that God considers sin and we have kind of a hierarchy in our minds. There's some really big sins like the lightning bolt sins. Then there's the mild nausea sins. And then there is the things that God kind of looks at and goes, eh, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and we have these lists in our mind. And the lightning bolt sins are the ones that we don't even do Anyway. We may not even be tempted to do those things. But when we hear somebody else doing them, we say, God, you need to deal with that person. God is so amazing that he would put up with people like you, you know? That's the way we think. But if we just stay away from the big three or whatever it is in our minds, we think that we're okay, we're in the clear. And when we do screw up and we do feel bad, it's no big deal because we're not as bad as some other people, And with us, God just kind of goes, oh, it's okay, what's that between friends? That's how God deals with me, not you, but me. But the truth is, our greatest need always has been and always will be a savior. And as time goes by, I am more and more convinced that we make the same mistake that the people in Jesus' day made, which is this. That's the second point. We have a tendency to underestimate the significance of our sin, And we overestimate the significance of our own personal goodness. Somehow we still believe, despite all that we've been taught, all that we've read, all that we've heard, we still kind of believe that if we do enough good stuff, we're going to be okay in the sight of God. On his grand scale, if the good outweighs the bad, that's what counts. And we still compare ourselves to each other. We think, at least I'm better than him, or I'm not as bad as the people I see on the news. So I'm better than him, but I'm not really willing to be a missionary, so I'm kind of in the middle somewhere, which is usually the safe place to be, right in the middle. But here's the unfortunate reality, friends. We sorely, sorely underestimate the significance of our sin, and we overestimate the significance of our own personal goodness. Consequently... My greatest felt need is not a savior to save me from my sin. So when we come into church, we come into a room like this and we hear somebody say, Jesus, God sent Jesus to save you from your sin. We yawn and go, well, that's nice, but what I really need is help with my bills. Here's what I want to get across to everyone. Everyone here. Maybe you hear this a lot. Maybe you don't hear it hardly ever. Maybe you're on your annual pilgrimage to church at Christmas time or somebody dragged you here or whatever, whatever the case may be. Stay with me for just a minute. Um, Maybe you saw the, the movie Titanic. I saw it way back when. At the critical time of panic, ships going down, everybody's scrambling, people are going for lifeboats. And at that point, the band makes its way out to the deck to start playing music while the ship is going down. And I remember as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking... What is the point of that? You're all going to die. Why worry about tuxedos and sheet music and violins? You don't need music. You need a lifeboat. Well, in the same way, for your Heavenly Father and my Heavenly Father to send us anything other than a Savior would have been like turning up the music or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It would have been totally irrelevant. Totally I mean, what's the point of changing your circumstances here on earth if when you die you're separated from God? What's the point? What's the point of lowering taxes or getting you married or helping your finances if your eternity is not settled? So God says, I love you so much that I know what you need. And what you need is not a more comfortable seat. You don't need better music, you need a savior. You need a Savior. Here's the third point to help us understand this. When we sinned, and we all have, nobody here is perfect. When we blew it, when we sinned, when we fell short of God's glorious perfection, we created a debt debtor relationship with God. That's just fact. And we can only have a relationship with God on His terms. But the problem is, I'm not perfect, and neither are you. And my natural response to my imperfection is, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And from this point, we always add this, and from this point forward, I'll do better. That might work in some, in some way in my relationship with you, but it doesn't work with God. When we sinned against him, it created a debt and debtor relationship and somebody's got to pay the debt. I mean, in my relationship with you, in horizontal relationships, I can say, from this point forward, I promise, I won't do anything else bad. But the big elephant in the room is what about those things I've already done? I've committed cosmic treason against the holy God. Now what? Imagine if I... Imagine if I stole your phone, got all the information and stole your identity and you find out about it and you know it was me and you come to me and confront me about it and I say, you know what? I am really, really sorry that I stole your identity. I feel really badly about that and I'm never, ever, ever gonna do that again. Never, I promise. To which if you're nice, you might say, well, okay, all right, but where's my phone and all the money you stole? How about that? And I can say, no, 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 it's okay. I said, I said I'd never do it again. We can be friends now. I promised that I would never do this again. I promised. Gosh, I promised. You might, if you're a really nice person, say, oh, all right. That might be okay from this point on, but what about everything you stole from me? See, that, just, that attitude just doesn't wash with anyone. We've created a debt with God, and in order for me to have a relationship with God, that debt has to be paid, and I can't pay it. The only way for me to get square with God is for someone to pay the debt. So you know what I need? I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Like the angel so clearly stated from the skies above Bethleh- Bethlehem that night, In Luke chapter 2, he says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. God sent us what we needed most. Because here's the uncomfortable truth. I don't need a second chance. I need a Savior. I don't need to try harder. I need a Savior. I don't need direction. I need a director. I don't need an improvement of life. I need someone to give me life. I need a Savior. So, on that very first Christmas, Messiah comes. But he's not going to ride a white horse of conquest, he's going to ride a donkey not going to be a king, it's going to be a carpenter, it's not going to save you from your taxes, it's going to save you from your sin, because although it is not your felt need, it is your real need. Sending anything else is just rearranging the furniture. So, thank God, Christmas is good news. Christmas is the best news. Christmas is the merriest of news, We can say Merry Christmas and mean it because we know what is behind Christmas. We understand it. In fact, take a second and just say to the people around you, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you can mean that from the bottom of your heart. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord, we're so grateful that Christmas is indeed merry Christmas. Not just a warm, fuzzy notion, but it actually is wonderful and merry. Lord, thank you for the good news that came from the skies above Bethlehem that night. That tonight, to us, a Savior has been born. Not someone just to help us with our taxes and our problems and our circumstances and our relationships. But Lord, a Savior to save us from what has eternally plagued us. To free us and save us from our sin.